Hi, Natalie. How's it going? Good, good, thank you. Right, Natalie Bell, absolute pleasure having you here. Um, the way we like to start, I don't know if you've seen any of our podcasts, but we'd first like to look at a piece of art and then just get your opinion on it, whatever you think about it. Wow. Okay. It's quite intense. And I can see quite a lot of, um, I don't know, a mixture of passion and something quite raw. Intense, passion, raw. And I'm not sure if those little red eyes are kind of weirding me out a little bit, but. Yeah. Yeah. I like it because it draws you in and there's a lot to kind of um, try and think about and analyze when you look at it. Because the more I look at it, the more smaller bits I can see that are kind of making me think, why is there a number four? Yeah. And why is there only three toes on the foot? And why is it green? You know, yeah, you just start yeah, asking yeah. loads and loads of questions as to why it is the way it is. And I suppose that's like the work we do, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yeah. So, yeah, so we've been using this, um, this painting for quite some time. But what's really cool about it is you've just said something that no one else has said about the feet and having like three toes or whatnot. So getting different people to hear their perspectives on it is really quite cool. Um, but yeah, so that's the way we like to start anyway. But this is all about you and we want to know about you and that going back from the beginning. So how you grew up, siblings, parents, where you grew up and your journey to where you got to today. So yeah, I know that's a lot to take in. Yeah. But let's start from the beginning. <laughs> let's start from the beginning. Who's Natalie okay. Bell? So my background is um, quite unusual. Um, I was born in Chelmsford in Essex. Um, yeah, Essex, Good Essex girl. Essex. Yeah, um, and my father came from Newcastle, and he's white English, I suppose. And my mother, um, she was born in Vietnam, but she grew up in Cambodia, and they got married in France. So they met in France. My oh. my mom was there, um, sort of escaping the Vietnam War. Okay. And her parents had told her, just stay away and try and settle down somewhere. And they sent her over on like a student visa. Um, and my dad was sort of like the black sheep of his family. He was the only one that um, was academic. He came okay. from a mining family. That's, uh, that's a bit, you know, when you say the black sheep of the family, you yeah. expect like, oh, he's the troublesome one. Or yeah. he's this, you're like, he was no, academic. He was academic like, one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the artistic yeah. one because he wanted to learn to paint. Yeah. So he went so to Paris France. to learn yeah, to paint. Yeah, so he was um, the only one that sort of left England and went traveling and um, really knew that he didn't want to live in the north of England in Newcastle. Was and, that quite a young age? Uh, yeah, I think partly because he did spend time in Germany um, and I think he was, I think he was in the... Air Force for a bit, but or something like that. But he he did yeah. spend some time in national service, um, so he got used to travelling outside of the UK, and he didn't want to go back mm. to civilian life in the UK. So he carried on sort of yeah. exploring. Um, but they got married, and then they moved to Essex. I, I almost do. don't understand why they moved there, but they did. Um, and I was born there, um, so it was really strange for me because I grew up in a very white area. I didn't know other people who were not white. And um, even yeah, though I'm mixed, no, no, 
no. So that was another thing that was really mm. me, yeah. myself and yeah, I. Yeah. <laughs> um, I went to a comprehensive school where there was one and a half thousand young people and I really stood out mm. and not just because of my ethnicity, but because I was really, really small as well. Yeah. So my mum was four foot eight yeah. and I was tiny. Yeah. So when I went to secondary school, I looked like I was about eight years old. Yeah. So um, I had a lot of attention, but I was also very, very small. So it was quite a strange um, sort of and context you, for me to grow up in. How did you take to that attention? Was it, would you say it was positive? How was it? Um, I don't know if you know a lot of the pop songs that would have been around when I was young. Um, and Hong Kong Fui was on the TV wow. and um, China Girl by David Bowie. Everyone was Kung Fu dancing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there was this like 10 year period of lots and lots of popular music. And mm. I probably had every single song sang to me over and oh. over and over again. Um, People weren't really aware of other um, Asian ethnicities apart from, you know, are you Chinese, are you Japanese? And no one had really heard of Vietnam. It was just quite strange because people would really focus on the fact that I um, had a Vietnamese mother. And how did that make you feel at the time? Can you remember? Um, I think I, I do remember walking around with a peg on my nose trying to make it more pointed. Um, I started bleaching my hair with um, hydrochloric acid from the chemist that you were meant to use mm. on, like, removing stains and things. I was, like, yeah, yeah sleeping with um, hair dye in hoping that it would make my hair blonde. I had this obsession with blue eyes. I would have probably been about 12, 13. And then that, yeah. do you think that was because of, when you say, when you're going back to that time, like, them singing songs with you and whatnot or just not feeling a part of... Yeah, I never felt a part of anything. I always felt very, very, um, I suppose, excluded, very alone, very um, separate. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I spoke French until I was five and then I went to school speaking French and that was... Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was kind of Language hard too. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, there were a lot of things that were really different. Um, and I didn't really have any advice or guidance That's or any support to manage that. To, no. no. And did, at that time, could you speak to your parents about it or was it just... Mm, no, not really. I mean, I think as a family, we probably all went through a similar sort of experience. Mm, yeah, of course. Um, my mum in particular, because she couldn't speak English. So it was probably even worse for her. And then I'm sure your struggled. dad went through things as well, like being with someone that maybe he's not supposed to be with back then. Yeah. So yeah. like you say, I suppose everyone had their own experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think because they'd met and they were both very singular when they met, because also my dad wasn't with his family, my mum wasn't with mm -hmm. her family. And I think that's a, a sort of phenomenon that surrounded all three of us as individuals. Um, I remember I was, oh, I'm just going to be really honest, um, I was in therapy once and the therapist said, you know, how do you feel about your parents? Do you think they loved you? Um, and I sort of said, yeah, I, I do believe that they loved me and they wanted mm. me. But it felt like we all had very long arms. So we couldn't really get close to each other because we were very different from each other. I suppose, you know, a typical mother-daughter relationship is that you'd be very close and yeah. you know you'd feel physically close and emotionally close but I wasn't close to my mother at all um 
I think she struggled just being in the UK. Yeah. Um, yeah. She struggled with the language. We didn't speak the same language. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was pretty hard. I mean, she left um, the UK on and off a lot when I was younger to go and see her family in France. And mm. um, she left for good when I was about 16, 17. Mm. Um, and then she moved to America. So I had an 11-year gap where I didn't see my mum. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say I was more close to my dad. Yeah, I think there is a lot of um, difficulty just trying to settle somewhere, you know, when mm. you come to a place with nothing and you know that you actually can't go back home. Yeah. That's just yeah. not an option. Going yeah. back is not an option. And mm. everything that you are familiar with, you know it's going to be yeah. gone. Um, so I think that was particularly hard for my mum. She was one mm. of ten. Um, she came from a, a really wealthy background. Mm. They had servants. Um, my great my grandma was one of the first women in Vietnam to drive a car. Oh, they had okay. a lot of yeah, land. Yeah. So she came from a really, really um, sort affluent. of like high class yeah. affluent background. And then when you when the communists took over, they took everything, everything, and then. You know, if you didn't want to be a communist, your life was in danger and yeah, you, you yeah, had to get yeah. out. So it was almost like this huge extreme that she went from everything to absolutely nothing and ended mm. up in France. I mean, luckily, she, she did end up in France, but I think for mm. her, it was, it was very, very traumatic. Mm. Okay. So how was, at the time, what was that like for you? Um, yeah, I was really angry as a teenager. Um, and not just because of my mom, but because of a lot of things. Um, I think something that keeps triggering with me is that word resilience. You know, and people often say to me, oh, you're so resilient, as if it's something to go, yeah, yeah you're yeah, so yeah. resilient, yeah, you know, yeah. and you're like, yeah, everyone I, I know, be, no, like, because yeah. usually you're resilient been, because you've, you've been, been through, through trauma. Yeah, yeah. It's not something that yeah, people want yeah, to go through the yeah. fire to then come out of it and say, oh, yeah, I survived that. Yeah. Great. You know, you don't even want to be in the yeah. fire in the first place. 100%. 100%. So I, I find to... that quite hard, you know, when people don't really understand that. Because I saw um, it was just like a little saying or a meme or something online, and it, it was something around um, a lot of adults that are resilient have become that way. Mm. Because when, as a child, you're looking around and there's nothing, there's mm. nothing. You have to rely on yourself. Mm. You know, you haven't got the support of either, you know, money or parents or whatever, you know, that you might have needed um, to have escaped going through the really hard, painful yeah. stuff. And I think, you know, I mean, I'm really um, proud of where of I come from. I'm proud of my heritage. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of what I've achieved. Um, but it, it's not something that I feel I chose. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think you like, you're spot on with that. So even with some of the young people that we work with, and one of the words about, we talk about resilience and being resilient, but like you say, it's not something that you want to be. It's not something you aspire to be because... With resilience comes heartache and it yeah. comes trauma and pain. And that's the way you become resilient, do you know what I mean? So I definitely understand where you're coming from with that. But then also, I suppose, you do have to respect, know that you're made of something and you can get through certain things. So I don't know, like, I, I feel for myself sometimes I've been a bit desensitised mm. to certain things because I think, mate, do you know what I mean? Like, mm. I, I don't know, I might see something on EastEnders and I think, well, oh, Please, I went through that when I was 12. Like, do you know mm. what I mean? So 
I do understand that as well. So, yeah, it's a bit of a tricky yeah. one. So you were saying that um, so you were quite angry when you were younger. Yeah, that kind of came out in uh, being sort of rebellious. I was also a punk. I got really into indie music. Yeah. I used to love going out to see live bands. Okay. Um, I was really fearless and do things on my own and, you know, all of that. Yeah. So I had this sort of like other side to me. Um, and I had like bright orange bleached hair. It was all in spikes. Mm -hmm. I used to wear these uh, skeleton earrings that were literally onto my shoulders. And people used to walk across the road. Like if they didn't literally. know me, I looked yeah. really terrifying, you know, walking down streets in Essex wearing these crazy clothes and looking yeah. really, really sort of um, out there. And where, where was that? Was that just the culture that you was into? Where do you think that came from? Did you so when people would cross the road? Did you like that? Did you like what was your feeling with it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I do have a lot of conversations with um, other friends that I've kind of met in my life who have a very similar mindset, and it's often because they are only children that have been in a really sort of uh, quite a difficult and strange childhood, and somewhere along the line, they're like, you know what. I'm in this world, I'm on my own, I'm just going to do my own thing. I don't care mm. what anyone thinks of me and I'm just going to have to take risks and do my stuff on my yeah. own. So you become quite thick-skinned and you also find ways to protect yourself. So when I was being teased a lot when I was little, I um, learned how to run really fast, like really fast. Yeah. So I could just get out of the situation or um, I'd be a bit of a joker. You know, I'd like to be quite witty and sort of like deflect stuff and pretend that even though what you're saying is really hurtful I'm just going to laugh it off and I'm going to turn it into something but yeah sometimes I sort of just thought oh you know something I don't like this society I don't like this yeah. community you know really um, I don't like where I live um, I hate the fact that people kind of think that they can insult me all the time so I mm. sort of made this very tough exterior and and celebrated my sort of onlyness. Mm. I sort of made it into something and just thought, right, okay, if I look different, yeah. I'm going to look really different. Yeah. And if you're going to give me a hard time, I'm going to, you know, sort of like freak you out before you freak me out. <laughs> I'm just going to look so like weird that you're just going to, yeah. you know, be caught off guard and not know what to say to me because actually you have no idea who I am. So I'm not going to let you label me and mm. all of that. I couldn't wait to move to London. Yes. That was a dream. Because I used to visit London and I felt more at home. I have really great memories of going to Chinatown with my mom and looking at people and saying, oh my gosh, these people look like me and my mom. Yeah. I actually feel at home here, you know? Um, even though it was Chinatown, it wasn't, you know, Vietnamese town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was that sort could, of like, I could blend like you, in. You could um, see, yeah, and people you weren't staring. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and how important do you think that is? I'm saying in context of, when you were younger and just thinking about some of the young people we work with, yeah, like being able to see it's so important. It's really important. I mean, if it's a mix, though, isn't it? Like, I have a big team of workers, and for me, it's really important that we have a diverse team. The more diverse the team is, the more diverse the group of young people come along are. That familiarity, I think, makes people feel more comfortable. So it's really important that if a young person's coming into a session and they've never been before that they might feel like, oh, yeah, there's some people here that I sort of think that I could 
mm. trust I could talk to. And then as time goes on, they feel like they can talk to everyone in the room. Yeah, but of course, because they begin with. Being around, yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I mean, youth culture. You just go in the street and you'll see all the little cliques and all the groups of, you know, young people. And they all dress alike or the hair's all the similar yeah. sort of style and stuff. And it's a natural thing they do. It's a tribal thing. You know, you sort of mm-hmm. go with the people that you feel comfortable with. And how, so you said at 16, was it 16 you said your mum left? Yeah. So how was that? So was it just you and your dad at the time? Yeah. And how was that like? So doing like your A-levels and whatnot, it's just you and your dad. How was that for you like? Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. <laughs> um, it, it was hard because I think when I started becoming a young woman, it was kind of hard for my dad. Mm. And then my mum wasn't there. So that was really, I can, looking back, that was really difficult um, because we never sat down and had those conversations, you know, about growing up. It just never happened. Um, I think he asked, like, a a woman who lived up the road to keep an eye on me and to try and help me with that sort of transition from being, you know, a child to a woman. Um, So, yeah. It's, I remember now, I ended up being her cleaner and her babysitter because we didn't have any money. Um, so I had to sort of earn money quite quickly when I was younger. I used to do paper rounds and anything to sort of get by. But um, she she sort of kept an eye on me. I suppose that's not really the norm. Like no. A father looking after a child. So no. How was that, if you can remember? Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. I think we both struggled with it. Mm. Um yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very grateful that he decided to get on with it and do his mm. best. But I think in those times, you know, because I'm 54, I'm not, <laughs> yeah. you know, being born in the 60s and then going through all of that sort of like in the early 80s, it was mm. a very different cultural setup. Mm. Um, and also like, you know, Chelmsford is not London yeah, yeah. in any way, shape or form. So I think it was quite hard. It was hard for him. But I did really get involved in my local community. I took myself off to church when I was 11 because I think I sort of understood that I needed more than what I could get from home. Um, And school was quite challenging. So I used to just go to church, but it was a really different church. It was in a shopping center. It was very laid back. They had like a full on youth band and it was not like the traditional churches that you see. Um, and the people there were really sort of, uh, they just really loved you unconditionally. And I really warmed to that. And I think that was my first sort of entry into community work mm. because that was really weird that complete strangers would care for you. Yeah, I can see that. But it seems like just like from hearing what you're saying that you've always been maybe through the isolation, but you've been quite independent yeah. from a young age. And then you've been a bit of a decision maker from a young age as well. Yeah. To say, like, to assess it and say, okay, like when you're talking about some of these defense mechanisms, like, all right, if I do this, that's going to stop you from doing that. If I learn how to run fast, I'm going to take myself out. Yeah. So you were saying that. So basically you went, um, you started doing A-level. So from visiting London, you was like, that was the dream to come to yeah. London. And then um, I really wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm. That was the other big dream yeah. that I had. Um, and I, I managed it. I set up a business when I was... Uh, I would have been 21. And that was my introduction to Coin Street. Yeah. So I was a designer maker and I took over one of the temporary units at Gabriel's Wharf. 
And was you still living at Chelmsford at the time? No, 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 no. I left Chelmsford when I was 18 and I right, nev- so let's go to never that went back. All right, so let's go to that point. So 18, so you're doing 18. your A-levels. Yes, okay. yeah. And then I did a one-year um, art course in Braintree, which is my art foundation, which actually was the best course I ever did in my life because you get to try out every different art form and you develop yeah. your portfolio and you just decide at the end of it where you want to specialise. And that's where I sort of thought, right, fashion, definitely. Okay. Um, then I moved to Berkshire, um, did a two-year HND, and then I moved to... Was London. you staying on campus when you were doing the HND? The art school was literally just a big house. Okay, Yeah, cool. it was very small. Yeah. Um, and all it did was art stuff. So there was only 100-something students. It was very specialised. Okay. So then, so you finished that two-year HND. Yeah. And then what was the decision then? To move to London. Okay, so what... How was that though financially? How could you afford You know, to... in those days, yeah. everything was free. Yeah. Your education was free. You got housing benefit to stay in your, you know, chosen place where you wanted yeah. to study. And it meant that people from working class backgrounds yeah. could actually like just leave home at 18 and set themselves yeah. up. And then when I left um, college and moved to London, you automatically you know, could sign mm. on. If you couldn't get a job, you could automatically sign on. And they would encourage you, obviously, to yeah, not no, sign yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, of course. But it was there, you know, no questions asked. If you didn't have a wage, then you were supported until mm. you got um, a job or whatever. Um, but I went on to the enterprise allowance, which I wish they would bring that back because um, it was a scheme that Conservatives brought in, I think. Um, but to get people off the unemployment books yeah. and to be um, self-employed or to run their own business. So you could say to the dole office, right, I'm going to now set up my own business. And they would give you... The dole office, that's the job centre, right? Yeah, the DWP. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. all of that. Word, the dole, old dole yeah. office on the rock and roll. <laughs> I showed my <laughs> age. On the old rock and roll. Yeah. yeah. So I was getting, I think it was £65 a week to live on mm-hmm. and all my rent paid. And then they team you up with a business centre and then you would be mentored, um, and I was given a business unit to rent, but for the first few months it was free. Mm. Um, and they just knew that one in three businesses do actually survive, and um, my business lasted for 16 years. So, and what business was that? So I actually um, I started off making, I know it's weird, but I started off making hats. Oh, nice. Because I could get like 100 of them into one big laundry bag yeah. and I could carry that bag on my own on the tube and sell them on a stall at Camden Lock and that's yeah. where I first started selling and then the people who were running that market at Camden Lock had ties with Gabriel's Wharf at okay. Point Street so as I started getting my money in and I got more established um, I then moved into a shop unit with a couple of other um, young women who were making stuff um, and then when I had my shop unit I didn't have to carry what was it called? everything what was your, was your... oh it's called Cherub Cherub, yeah, Cherub. yeah, and it was hats. Was... Well, I did hats. Another partner did like um, tailored clothing. Another one did knitwear. And it was all under Cherub. Yeah, okay, yeah, cool. yeah. And that was it. So you got a unit in Gabriel's Wharf. Gabriel's Wharf, and yeah. was that was that Waterloo? It's next South to the Oxo Tower. Oxo yeah, Tower. okay, cool. Yeah, it's still yeah. there now. When I first got interviewed, they said, "Oh, these are temporary, like flimsy units. They'll only be yeah. here for about five years." Yeah, like nearly thirty years later, they're still there. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it's was... thriving. How was that? Like, so you've got this, you've got this, you're young. What are you at this time? How old are you? About 22, 23. Okay, yeah. so you've got this business, you're doing fashion. Mm-hmm. Are you designing the hats and whatnot and getting them Yeah, 
Yeah, and oh. then I started doing more clothing, like yeah. because I had a shop, I could actually make bigger stuff. And mm-hmm. I did a lot of make to measure. I ended up doing um, theatre costumes and wedding dresses and all sorts. It was. And how was that like in terms of? Obviously, you studied this, but now actually running a business, I suppose, speaking to, how was you getting it done? Did you have to speak to manufacturers and whatnot? Because to me, that doesn't know about, mm. let's say, well, I like fashion, but I don't know the ins and outs of actually running that business. What was that like? What are the things that you needed to know or you had to learn on the job? What was that like? Yeah. So I had um, I had 12 women that used to work for me, that used to sew at home. Um I used to put adverts in the Evening Standard and just say, right, you know, I need people to make um, fashion items at home on your machine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I used to pay really good rates. So um, that was something that I think subliminally I wanted to give other women a chance to earn their own money and to Mm -hmm. be able to work if they had children, um, you know, and to pay them good money. Um, It's strange because I don't think the rates of pay have really gone (laughs) because I was paying like between I think sort of 10 and 15 pounds an hour and we're talking nearly 30 years ago yeah Yeah, definitely not definitely not you know I just think that something has really gone wrong with the economics of this country because Mm. I also bought a flat when I was 23 and I bought a brand new van so you've so yeah. you done quite well for yourself. Oh, I because, lost it all. No, but you've done quite I well. I lost it all. No, let's get back yeah. to this, though. But at least I was able to do that at the age yeah. of 23. And um, my flat was in Zone 1 in Lambeth Road. And, yeah. you know, like now, it's just not possible for a young adult yeah. to set up a business and do all of that. It's just impossible. So uh, we're going to go back now because you're telling me that you bought a flat, you got a van, you're running this business. So was, you doing, was your business doing quite well from when you set up? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was living off it. It was yeah. doing okay. I mean, with a business, it is up and down. And with fashion, you're only as good as your last collection. Mm-hmm. So it's very fickle. Um, I started getting more into catering work and bar work to sort of like make sure that I had regular money coming in every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I did that for a while when my first child was quite young. I used to have to juggle that because I just thought I can't have a small child and, you know, just rely on the earnings from the business because um, there was a horrible financial crash that happened when I had the flat and we lost the flat. And then there was another one um, later on where um, even the Japanese economy and some of the European economies, like they owed me quite a lot of money for some massive orders that I had done and started exporting. Mm. Mm. So at one point I was delivering stuff to 36 different outlets and Canada, New York, you know, I started doing really well. And was this just you by yourself or was this Pretty much, yeah. No, this was me on my own. But, um, and I was a Prince's Trust business. Yeah. Yeah. So they used to give me like platforms to be able to get um, a showcase unit at the clothes show and then take those big orders from buyers that were coming from all over the world. But they don't pay you. There's Mm. nothing you can do about it. So if you're owed like thousands of pounds from Japan and Germany and you've delivered the stock, you've paid your outworkers mm-hmm. and they just turn around and say, oh, the shop's shut down, I can't pay you. I, I kind of had it. That was just yeah. like so, <laughs> hard. Yeah. It, it sounds, I'm, what I'm trying to do, if I was a young person, like some, what you're saying sounds amazing in terms of setting up a business at a young age, having the, I don't know, I wouldn't say the goal, but having the guts. The guts. Yeah. 
to say, you know what, I'm leaving Essex, I'm going to come to London, I'm going to do all of these things, like, and resilience and perseverance and whatnot. But try and explain it in the most layman's terms. What was it? Was you learning on the job while you were doing mm. these things? Because it's like, that sounds daunting. You're shipping out to yeah. 36 countries. How did you learn these things? How did you acquire these skills? What was it? What, did you have a mentor at the time? Did you have someone that would give you advice? What got you to that point where you were able to do these things? It was a mixture of things. I think um, I love to learn and I'm very curious. So if I don't know how to do something, I'll find out. Um, and back in the day, there was no internet and no mm. computers. So you literally had yeah. to do it through networking and face-to-face -face stuff. I think um, now, you know, if you set up a, a business, you can sell online and it's so much mm. easier and your costs mm. of just existing are so much less. Whereas we had to hire a shop and you had to be there. Yeah, and you had, yeah. you know, if you weren't open, you didn't make any money. And every transaction with every single person that you met, you know, was really important. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and your reputation as an individual was important and, and trust, mm -hmm. you know, because that was the only way you're going to sell stuff. So I did meet quite a few people along the way and um, the Princess Trust were really helpful. I did have business mentors on and off. Um, I had an agent at one point who really helped me to kind of expand and to do the okay. overseas market because she would take a cut. Um, and you, you did, you learned on the job yeah. and you, you just had to be ready to take risks. I mean, I'd say that my risks were sort of calculated, but they were always a risk. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've never really been frightened of trying something new, but I wouldn't just blindly go into yeah, something and, like you, you know, get massively risk. ripped off. Growing up at those at those ages, would you say you had any? Would you would you say you had any influential people that were in your life? Like, so I know I can look back and say, you know, what that person was really influential for my progression with life in life. Is there anyone you can look at back then? Well, let's say role was, models then. Yeah. Did you have any role models at that time? I think maybe something that was subliminally growing was. Um, looking at really strong, angry women <laughs> yeah. that would represent sort of like how I felt, but I'm not very good at showing anger. Yeah. I'm not a very angry person, but I admire people who come across as being passionate, let's say passionate. But um, my icons when I was sort of growing up, you know, people like Blondie, people, women in the music business actually who'd yeah. done really well. Um, and then looking at some of the books that I've been reading more recently, like Viv Albertine, she was from the Slits and she was like in a very male dominant music industry mm. era. And just reading about her experiences of it, it just really smacks of what most women were going through. Because I think, you know, even now we're not living in a very equal society. And um, when I was growing up, it really wasn't. It was very, very white male dominant, you know. Oh, you know, we've got a female prime minister, Margaret Thatcher, yeah. and that was super interesting yeah, and different, yeah, even though yeah. she was hardcore and yeah. a lot of people really hated her and, and, you know, the way she did things. I did admire the fact that she was a woman. And, and where, where do yeah. you think that came from? Not just you being a woman, but do you think that came from, because you mentioned Blondie, was it going back to when you were younger, so feeling ostracised or feeling isolated and, feeling quite angry and wanting to be able to say certain things, mm. but maybe these people are saying how you yeah. felt. Yeah, yeah, and they represented a way out. And yeah. they represented um, 
a way that women could be really powerful or strong or break the mold or actually like just be really visionary and mm-hmm. say, you know what, I'm just going to make this happen. And somehow they did. Somehow they got through all of those layers of and barriers to get to where they wanted to be. Like Chrissy Hind, I used to really love Chrissy Hind, you know. Um, she was another female rock star, you know. And um, yeah, there was something around punk and rock music that really sort of influenced me. And I suppose that when you're saying that, what that makes me think of is probably hip hop. Yes. In terms of, because it was going against the grain. Yes. And yes. it was like, fuck the system oh, sort yeah, of yeah, thing. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Punk was also a movement of, like, rock was that, we're not what you expect us to be. Yeah. We're going to be who we are and be individuals. And that's what, to me, that's what hip hop was when I first started listening to it. Yes. It was going against what they say the norm is. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And really saying. Yeah. So, yeah, so I definitely can understand what you're Yeah, no, from it's that. a bit of anarchy. Yeah, 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 most definitely. So, yeah, so you were saying, so business wise, Start. You said you had a child. When did you have a child? How old? I'm 26. Okay, so you was you wasn't like yeah. really young or whatnot. So and how and at that time did you still have the business? Um, no, things had crumbled quite a lot by then. So um, the flat that I had got repossessed, and um, when I was pregnant, I was living in a squat on Brixton Road. Bit of PL. Yeah. Let's go back to and um, say the flat got repossessed. Yeah. How was that? Like, was that just bad money management? Yeah, that was a lot of stuff. I think um, the, the interest rates went sky high literally within a year. And it was already a push to have the flat. I mean, yeah. Um, so we couldn't afford it. And, um, it got repossessed, and then we'd bought the flat for £60,000. you say we? Oh, I was um, married at the time. Okay, yeah. cool, cool. Um, And then the flat got sold for £28,000. Oh, yeah. And you bought it for and how much? Sixty. And it got sold But now it's probably yeah. worth £500,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know more, what I mean? And that's and how more, life yeah. can be. Like, so much of the stuff around us is completely out of control. Yeah, it's not in our realm to be able to kind of plan ahead like that because and how I did you feel never... like what was that like being married and then you've got the flat and then you lose the flat what so what did that feel like and did it have a, an effect on your relationship what was that like at the time yeah no the like... marriage didn't last it didn't last um and I think we were too young as well it was a very very short marriage okay so then you said and then at the age so you met someone new uh, no, not no, new. Not new. Okay, <laughs> right, cool. I won't go too much into it. But anyway, not new. Not new. Not new. No. So you ended up no, having a pre, child. Pre, pre the marriage. Yeah, yeah pre marriage. Yeah, yeah that went start. back to more yeah, familiarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As, yeah. As, as you do. Yeah, as you do. So, and then you had a child. Yes. Yeah, and that. Yeah, and but by that time, I suppose you was very independent, been married, had a business, house, yeah. and whatnot. So. What was and your child was that with was that interracial relationship? Because obviously yes. I know, you're, yeah. Yes. So you're on Brixton Road, just down the road. Yeah, so and Brixton, Brixton was Road pretty awful then. But in, in it wasn't, terms, <laughs> it yeah. wasn't gentrified like yeah. it is now. It was like you know deep Brixton, like really. Yeah. 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 And then in terms of like when you when I said we were saying, so was that was it easier at that time? Because I want to know what the climate was like having a mixed race child in the, in that time. Was it? What would you say it was like? In Brixton, it's easy because yeah. you feel it's normal. Mm. It's 
it it wasn't unusual. If I'd been in Chelmsford, wow, yeah. that would yeah. have just been my childhood all over again, yeah. like yeah. really all over again. Because even when my two daughters were quite little, we'd go back to Chelmsford to visit my dad, and they hated going because everyone stared yeah. at them. Like, it, you know, we're not talking that long ago. It's mm. um, yeah. I suppose I always felt um, quite comfortable in Brixton. Yeah. Yeah. And how long did you stay in Brixton for? How long was you in the squat for? Ah, uh, the squat a year. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this because um, I, I have one photograph somewhere to prove it, but I stayed in a room that was built on top of another room out of packing boxes with a corrugated plastic roof. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Say that again. It a was room just... <laughs> that was built on top of another room. Yeah. How? How does that work? Yeah, because the people I was living with, um, somebody who lived there was a bit of a handyman. And... Yeah. Um, he used to just construct things. So, yeah, this this room that I was in, it was built on top of the kitchen, which had a flat roof. And he yeah. put a load of carpet down and then just built this wooden nice. structure with nice. a plastic roof on it. Make something out yeah. of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, I stayed with my friends. We were working at the restaurant together. You know what? Give me a funny, tell me about, I'm sure there must be loads, but tell me a funny story about living in Brixton and living in a squat that you can remember? Is there any funny stories you can remember? Okay, I don't know if you find this funny. It's quite horrifying. But um, in the squat, there were a lot of big rats. Okay? Yeah, I don't so, know where you're going with this. No, I know. Well, there we, uh, we, we got cats to hopefully get rid of the rats, but yeah. the rats got rid of cat, which wasn't good. The rats got rid of the cat? Yeah. So then we got quite desperate and we had no, to no, use... No, no, no. You're not yeah. explaining what do you mean they killed the cat? We think, yeah, the cat never came back so the cat came to the house you had the cat in the house yeah to get rid of the rats and yeah. then you came back and the cat, cat disappeared yeah okay same yes. as that yeah this challenge is a bit too much yeah, yeah right. so then we had to get these really big traps because we're not talking little yeah, cute rats, rats. we're from, talking big yeah. rats dangerous big rats yeah nasty we could hear them uh, it was just awful we had to get rid of them um and there was one morning this is the funny bit so one morning we come to the kitchen and massive box of cornflakes and the box of cornflakes go like, rats inside oh my so. god what's going on with the box of cornflakes and so we sort of hit the box of cornflakes with a stick and this huge rat just jumped out and like literally landed on the table and ran across oh. the kitchen and we were like that's it had enough can't do this anymore um so we ended up having to get traps which was really awful oh, it was really awful and we caught a rat and we you know you'd lay there at night You'd hear the rats running around and then you'd hear that and you just knew that one was gone. What, so, and that went on for quite a while. It was pretty grim. So what was it? The squat, was it a house? Yeah, it was a massive big old house. Oh, it's now being converted into very, very posh flats. And every time I drive past, yeah. I was thinking about the rats. Yeah. 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 So you tell the story, like if you drive past them with your daughter, you're yeah. like, you know what, I used to live there. I know, yeah, I know, I do. And then we, you know, you have to get rid of the rats in the trap. Yeah. And we were on the first floor, so we used to get trapped and there would be two of us opening it with, like, um, sticks and stuff to yeah. do that and then get the rat off the trap, yeah. put it on the windowsill with the window open and then just so whack it into the, the garden. Oh, man. <laughs> Doesn't sound right. It's not for the faint-hearted. All right, so cool. So, yeah, so two weeks on. <laughs> <laughs> that's my dark sense oh, of humor sorry no. but it's like you either have a nervous breakdown yeah. or you have to kind of just you have to just crack it. on don't yeah. you know you know what I'm i didn't like... enjoy doing it it was awful yeah but 
that's where that resilience comes oh, in, yeah. right? Yeah. That's that word again, it comes in. And like, from all your experience, what was, obviously I understand the perspective, my own perspective, Carl, I'm sure I understand his perspective being a young man or growing up, doing what we're doing. What was it like being a woman, being in the fashion industry, having your own business? How was that navigating through that as a woman in that time? And I'm sure it hasn't really changed much now. Mm. And then also now embarking on a point where you're a mother as well. What was that like as from a woman's perspective, being a woman? How was that? I think, um, I think it made me think about what is it like for um, single parents? How do they sort of navigate through having a job and, a, you know, a career, not just a job to make money, but a career? and have a child and how do you balance all of that out and I was really lucky that I had a lot of really good friends um so that you know they would help out with babysitting and stuff like that um I do have a memory actually of having my daughter in a massive cardboard box next to my sewing machine (laughs) and just singing to her a lot you know and she sort of like just was there and I mean that was the great thing about being self-employed is that you could work when you wanted to work so I could work all night if I wanted to and then be with my daughter all day or take her to work and um she could be with me like if I had an office job there was no way I could do that and was it you by yourself pretty much yeah 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 yeah, yeah pretty much tell me uh tell me two things that you like about yourself that I'm really nice. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, because that's the other thing is that maybe I am too nice and that's the thing I don't like about myself. So it, it's a double that, edge. Right? Yeah, it's a double edge thing. If you hadn't been told that constantly, then maybe yeah. you wouldn't think that. No, I mean, I think I'm going on a bit of a journey as to why I behave the way I behave because I'm realising that it's not normal. Like, not that anything is normal, but it is a bit extreme. Yeah, not because normal. a lot of people pick up on it and like, why are you like that? And I'm like thinking, why am I like that? But maybe because it's not normal in the day and age that we live in. It's not normal for people to do good, and it's more more people do bad than good. I'm not saying that is the yeah. case, but maybe it's that also. Yeah, I don't think it would ever. I think it's a good thing that you're nice. To be honest, I don't think <laughs> it could ever be a bad thing. Do you know no, I mean? no, I think um. It, it's something, though, I suppose in a more um, psychological sense, it's like really digging deep to sort of think mm. about, am I the way I am because I want um, I want people to like me mm. because I can't bear the thought of people not liking me. Is that my fear? You know, I do want to kind of explore, explore what is underneath yeah. it all, and I haven't really got to grips with that yet, but... Mm. Um, it is something that I think I should be Don't more aware too much, of. Please. No, no, no. I, well, I can't. <laughs> this is the way I am. Yeah. But I think it would yeah, be good to understand look. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing. Another thing that I like about myself. Okay, I would say that I I have integrity and I take it quite seriously. Um, integrity is a really important word to me, and it's something that I sort of only really thought about I suppose maybe about 10 years ago I really looked at that word integrity and it's doing what I say I'm gonna do Mm. and not just saying it and I realize that sometimes and you know apologies to everyone out there where I've said I'm gonna do something I haven't done it it's still on the list (laughs) it's still on the list and sometimes it might not happen for a while just because I, I can't physically do it or circumstances have changed or I've said yes too much and I need to slow down with the yeses and the promises that I make. 
And do you think when you talk about integrity and you said, I think you said um, doing things that you said that yeah. you promised to do, would you say that's really something that, because of the industry that you work in, mm. that is so important to have that? Because yeah. I feel a lot of young people and a lot of people that you work with within community, and especially if you're trying to support them, can get promised the world. Mm. And oh, I'm going to do this for you. Don't worry, we'll sort this out. And yeah. Then, do you know what I mean? It comes and out very lightly, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and, and I suppose a lot of community workers, you know, they do want to, the, the, the meaning is there and the passion is there to help people. Um, but sometimes it comes out very lightly and then you realise that actually what you've promised isn't deliverable or it mm. relies on so many other things yeah. that might not happen. And yeah, I agree with you. I, I have a real issue with young people being let down over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I think because I've worked in the community I've worked in for nearly 30 years, there's young people that I've seen growing up that have had issue after issue after issue, and I've seen the journey they've gone along, and it's been really painful and hard, and you can see where they've been let down and let down and let down, and they've got to a point where it's almost impossible to be mm. able to lift them to a point yeah. where they can be independent. And that's a real bugbear of mine, mm. you know. And there's there's some young people that I've kind of walked alongside them for years, and you know, something I'll say to them and their parents is like, you know, we we just can't give up, mm. we can't give up on you, you know. I know you've done this and you've gone back there and you've done this and gone back there, and everyone else around you is kind of like, oh, how much more yeah. do you need? But. I just think you, once you give up on people and they give up on themselves, then that's it. That, that yeah, really is definitely, it. Yeah, I agree with you completely there. All right, so what I've noticed is when we've been talking and obviously knowing you, you talk, it seems like really you, you talk about women and like some of the things that you've set up and even for like single mothers and whatnot, you, you always speak about women and wanting to empower women. and. Mm. Like, obviously, as a man, I'd like to know where that comes from and what that's about and how you do that and whatnot. So I'd like to delve a little bit more into that. Mm. Um, I've recently joined the Women's Equality Party. (laughs) I'm not even quite sure what I've got into, (laughs) but just thought, oh, yeah, that'd be a good idea. I'll do that. Um, I might be able to learn more about... I mean, there's certain statistics that make me really furious. And I do have a lot of heated debates. Give, give, give us some well, examples. I think it's the pay gap. You know, that really, really upsets me. And the number of women who lead companies and the number of, you know, compared to men, um, the number of women, say, who, you know, cite that they've been raped and then the amount of rape cases that actually come to sort of a conclusion. You know, it's things like that where there's very little power and um, a lot of frustration and a lot of oppression. And it just angers me that we're in this day and age and certain things just have not developed or moved on. And some things have actually regressed and gone backwards in a way. Give give me an example because I I can't speak, I can only speak for myself. I think sometimes for myself, I can be not ignorant to it, but so it's not something that I would probably see affecting me. So I might just turn the blind eye or I don't really see it. So I want, I want to actually learn from what you're saying. So give me an example where you say things just haven't changed. You said obviously about the pay gap. Yeah. Well, I think something that isn't so obvious is like stereotyping. 
you know and I think that starts really really young mm. and kind of like almost grooming children at a very young age I mean I even see it with my granddaughter that there's the kids in her school that will say oh girls do this and boys do this and this is peer-to-peer this is child to child and she'll come home and say oh no I can't do that because I'm a girl I'm like you're four years old (laughs) you can do what you like I mean uh, it's that drip feeding stuff and and also the imagery of women and I uh something that really really grates me is like the imagery of women in hip-hop culture and pop culture and Mm. in like um the fashion industry all of that i'm just like wow objectified yes Mm. yeah and then this sort of reverse uh attitude to it that some women they'll say that they feel really empowered because they're using that platform to get them money and to get them things. So like, 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 I don't know if you know, not to put people on blast, but like someone like Amber Rose, would you say someone like that? I don't know. I don't, I, Cause I haven't got a clue. Mm. Would you say she's one of those sort of people? Cause you're saying what you're saying about using, being objectified, but using that to gain power. money and power. Yeah. I mean, I'm just not quite, I, I don't feel very settled about that because the problem for me is that young girls will see that and think, Oh, that, that's a completely cool. cool thing to yeah. do. And then they'll start doing stuff when they're teens and getting themselves into all sorts of scrapes. That, and they're not going to get money and power out of it. They've just got themselves into a horrible situation that they'll probably regret for the rest of their lives. You know, and I, I just think there's so little attention um, given to, to, to children's education about themselves, their rights, their bodies, their identity. Um, their ability to be critical, to be creative. You know, it's like we put children through the system and it's like a mincemeat machine. Mm. And it's almost like if you don't fit in, we're going to make you fit in. Mm. (laughs) And then you come out the other end and you're not really used to feeling confident about who you are. There's very weird boundaries around sexuality and around image and around being judged through social media as well you know it's just mm. all wrapped up it's really complicated yeah no it definitely is no because even when you talk about being a child i look back but i look back on some of the cartoons and i do see what you're saying in terms of even if you look at like popeye yeah like literally it's just these two guys fighting over this girl yeah. and like, mm. she's just the objects yeah. of their desires and they're fighting each other to yeah. get her and who's got the muscles and whatnot and that's what they're attracted to and then there was the other one do you know the skunk pepe Le Pew? yes like this guy is a full-blown like I don't want to say rapist, but the guy just like physically like yeah. grabbing her and says, oh my mon chérie. And it's just yeah. like, when you look back and at a young age, I suppose, Very as a kid, yeah, it is impressionable because it makes you feel like, all right, this is how I go and get girls. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I have to be strong and I have to come here and, mm. do you know what I mean? So I definitely get what you're saying when you say that. Mm. So yeah, I can see that for myself. And I think, yeah, that was a good example to give me because it makes me start yeah. to understand that a bit more. Yeah, because yeah. I kind of feel like we've lost our way. We've lost our value system a lot. And I, I just feel like we're very, like, attracted to money and power and fame and we've sort of forgotten everything else. You mm. know, and I think particularly for young people, it's, it's quite a hard place to be in. I wouldn't want to be a young person right now. There's so much extra pressure that mm. I wouldn't have had as a teenager growing up. And I think social media is really... Oh, Key to that, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. And you say a young person, but I know people in their 30s, like men and women that feel 
even down to myself, you feel like you have to keep up with the Joneses or be a certain way because you're looking at this lens or looking at social media. For me, I'm not involved. Uh, I think social yeah. media, yeah, it works for some people, but it doesn't work for me. But I can see the pressure that it puts on yeah. young people. Do you know what I mean? And like when I say young, I'm talking people in their way in their 30s that I actually see it with and think, wow, like, how's that? How? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, do you have a favorite quote? I suppose it's not really like super, you know, intellectual or whatever, but it's a quote that I used to say to myself a lot when I was younger. And it's the golden rule. It's just treat others as you want to be treated. And that has been a little mantra that's gone all the way through my life, is that even when people are not being kind or not being helpful or being absolutely awful, (laughs) I could just step away and I'm like, I'm not going to engage in that because I still want to treat other people the way I want to be treated. It's it's been something that um, is always in the back of my mind. Mm. Okay. Right, so SE1 United. Yes. Tell me, tell me what's SE1 United or what was SE1 United? Okay, so um, SE1 United was born in 1993. Um, it was a really big youth forum um, that I set up with a group of young people in Waterloo. And then um, we hired a program manager called Jacob Whittingham. So it's myself and Jacob that managed it for about 10, 11 years. Um, we started um, a leadership program where about 35 young, mainly young men, but a few young women, um, all of them from um, ethnic minority backgrounds. And uh, they just decided that they wanted a different life. They wanted to visit other countries. They wanted to explore different cultures. They wanted to really find out more about life so that they could sort of have a much richer life for themselves um so we challenged young people to actually manage the process themselves so like if you want to go to Auschwitz how are you going to get there how much is it going to cost when are you going um and this became sort of like a a regular program I suppose they sort of cut their teeth by going to Northern Ireland they went to Kosovo they went to Auschwitz Uh, They went to Cuba, um, and part of the deal was that, you know, you learn about the culture, you learn about the spirit. So this is why I'm very excited about what you're doing, because it really reminds me, um, like, those experiences of going out of London, because a lot Mm. of them hadn't really come out of London, it was life-changing, you know, and they were asked to come back and share with other young people what it was like, um, what was interesting, what was difficult, um, what would they want to kind of um, talk about with young people in London? What sort of, sorry, what sort of, can you give me an idea of what sort of young people you were predominantly had in and you were working with? Um, mainly aged between, I'd say, 14 and 21. Um, a real mix of young people, um, but I'd say 70% young men. And then people would say that SC1 United was like a family because we had an open plan office. Young people could come in any time they wanted. We moved around a little bit. We often got adopted by an organization. So at one point we were at Southbank Center. Okay. Nice. Yeah, which was great. Yeah. That was really cool. I don't know if the people that normally came to the Southbank Center felt the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it was good. We were in the basement, like tucked out of sight, but every so often, yeah. you know, hundreds of young people would come and uh, we'd 
be on the stage with um, some of the artists. We would work in partnership and get them jobs within the South Bank Centre. Uh, we had a huge awards ceremony that we would run every year for 500 young people from South London, mm-hmm. which used to make the police really twitchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very twitchy. They're like, why does it have to be so big? Why do you have to have 500 young people? You're why like, not? Well, why not? Yeah, you why know, not? why are you prejudging? Mm-hmm. Why are you stereotyping? Why do you think they're all going to come with knives? You know, the first time we did it, I think we had, we were told we had to have 30 security we mm. had to have a knife arch and all of that. And that used to just make me so angry. Mm. Like just because they're young people from South London, you automatically assume that there's going to be a whole heap of trouble, mm. you know. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience to me. Um, I had done my degree in youth and community studies before I took on the job. I was a director of the charity. I cut my teeth on fundraising and found that I could do it quite well so I've carried on doing that I've um, done fundraising for lots of charities now and um, I really enjoy doing that it's it's a really Mm. good skill to have and then now you're at Coin Coin Street Street Community so what's that about Coin Street Community Builders so Coin Street Community Builders has been um, a very prominent um, organization on the South Bank because they own a big piece of land Um, it was a seven-year battle to get that piece of land and um, they've renovated the Oxo Tower building, which had been derelict for 40 years. Mm. So it's quite a big organization and it's sort of three different entities in one. So there's a charitable side, which is a um, Coin Street Centre Trust, and I sort of deliver all the programs for them. And then there's uh, Coin Street Secondary, which looks after the housing development. And then there's Coin Street Community Builders, which basically develops the whole site. So the next um, development we have is a huge leisure centre and a tower block of um, residential flats. But then there's a layer of um, sort of flats for affordable rent for key workers are going to be in that. Um, Yeah, so it's quite uh, unusual. Yeah, yeah, it's very broad and deep and it owns land. And I'd say it's a development trust. So Um, in terms of what you do there, what's your specific role within... So I'm the head of youth and community programs there. And what does that consist of? So we run activities every day, um, apart from bank holidays, pretty much. And we um, offer activities for small children and parents and teens and adults all the way up to like 100 years old. So it's a real mix. Some of the stuff is intergenerational. Some of it is specific. So like at the weekend, we um, have football sessions at the AstroTurf and we'll get like 63 young men coming to play football. So some of the sessions are really big and really popular. Um, Then we might have like a singing group. Um, We have one that's led by um, a visually impaired tutor. And because she's visually impaired, there's other members of the group are visually impaired because she teaches by ear. So they don't sort of have to read the music, they just learn by ear. And there's only like 10 members who come to that. But that's equally important to us. Yeah, it's not a numbers game. Yeah. It's more about providing activities and um, opportunities for people who live in the neighbourhood. Okay. And going on from that, what's your association with the Tate, the Tate Modern? What's your association? I knew with you were going to ask that. Well, of course you knew I was going <laughs> to ask this. So what's your association? Nothing to do with me, by the way, but what's your association with the Tate Modern? Um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, so, was it three years ago? Was it three know. years ago? Was it three years ago? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. 
huh yes you do uh, really because you were part you. of the uh, you I were part know. of it yeah. all yeah. Yeah. maybe you should answer the question first yeah, I, don't, I don't know but apparently <laughs> they named the whole building in the Tate so there's two parts of the Tate Modern there's the boiler room yes and there's the Blavatnik building yes and Blavatnik I don't he's the richest man in Britain or something like that um, I don't really know much about him and then there's the boiler oh it's not called the boiler room is it it's called the Natalie Bell Building. So they named the whole building after you in the Tate. And yeah, so that's that's what I know. So I want to know how that happened and how it came about for you and what it's been like for you. Okay. Well, the bit I know, because I don't, I don't think either of know, us yeah. know the whole story. Yeah. You know some of it and I know some of it. But um, Tanya Bruguera, Cuban artist, very political um, and she specialises in, um, I think she calls it art util. Yeah. So it's useful art. Um, she'd already done um, quite a few pieces in the UK and in other countries where she transforms spaces, and usually with a political agenda. So this time she was commissioned by the Tate to transform the Turbine Hall and she worked with, I think it's 21 local people or people who had like a real community focus. Mm. Um, and I think, Charles, you were one of those. Oh, you, you were one yeah. of those. Yeah. Um, and the group worked with Tanya over a few months and they were trying to come up with a concept where the Turbine Hall would be a space where you would think about people who were migrants. And uh, Tanya designed a room where you could go and sit and be surrounded by like a synthetic um, chemical that would make you cry. And there was a number of all of the people who were trying to migrate from their country because of politics or being, you know, fleeing a war-torn place or something like that. And then um, she mentioned that she had renamed a building in Europe as part of her activism before, and I think the neighbours really liked that idea. So she asked the neighbours to come up with a local person whose name could be put on the building temporarily, um, and then to see what the reaction would be of the public. Um, and I think there were criteria set that it couldn't be someone who was sort of the typical person who would mm. have the name on a building. So someone who was alive <laughs> rather than dead, somebody who wasn't, particularly wealthy, someone who was being um, remembered because of what they did. The work they do for the community. The work they do for community. Um, and to be thought of in time as an asset rather than money. Mm-hmm. So there was, yeah, there was a lot of thinking going on. And I had no idea this was happening. No, I had nothing to do with it um, until the tape came to my workplace and said that I've been voted to be the person to have their name on the tape. And it took them 45 minutes to convince me that A, it was real and true, and B, yeah. to actually do it. And um, because I sort of thought, okay, I don't really like limelight. I don't like attention. I like to quietly get on with what I'm doing. Um, I don't really like big ego stuff. Um, I thought, I'll do it for the political reasoning, and I'll do it to champion charity work and community work. And, you know, to, to kind of show that there's a different value system. Of course. That's what interested me mm-hmm. is that, yeah, you and know. The contrast between you and Blavatnik as well. Yeah. And it actually being 
someone being celebrated for actually supporting the community and working for the community as, as opposed to, I'm not saying that they do, because I'm sure they do a lot of great work, different people, but a lot of times for me, it seems like it's people that can just buy the community. They could just, do you know what I mean? Whereas you, you're actually part of this and live this. So for me, like, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really amazing, amazing thing. And when did you say it was temporary? How long ago was that? <laughs> two, three years ago yeah. now. And um, it's quite strange that it's still there. I mean, it's, it's weird because I go to the tape and nobody knows who I am when I'm walking around. And yeah. that's cool. That's how I would like it. I yeah. would hate to go and, yeah. you know, sort of be picked out as, ah, oh, What was it like when you first you know? saw your name, Natalie Bell? It was a the shock. The Natalie Bell building. Such a shock. And I did take my dad to the opening night and he just stood there. He was absolutely stunned for once. You know, yeah. nothing to say. <laughs> nothing to say. Yeah. But I think in a way, you know, it has been sort of something that the community is quite proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of... Well, I'm proud to be honest. I can't lie to you. Whenever I go there, I'm really like, yeah, you know, Natalie Bell, blah, blah. And then, because your name, Natalie Bell, you know... Just that name, well, coming from where I'm coming from, it sounds like, yeah, it's like probably a black girl or like a mixed race girl. And then I'm like, this is Natalie. And they're like, oh, okay. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, so it's nuts to be fair. But yeah, sorry, I interrupted. Carry on. No, it's cool. I mean, I just think it's nice that, you know, I'm relatively an ordinary person from a working class background mm. and, you know, that things like that can happen mm. to anybody. Yeah, because I was asked to give Tanya a picture of someone who sort of, for me, represented the work that I do. And I gave her a picture of um, a young adult called um, Yusuf. And he had come to SE1 United as a Syrian refugee. And his story overwhelmed so many of the young people at SE1 United because they could not imagine having absolutely nothing, nothing, and coming from you know, the situation he had kind of escaped from. And I think the fact that he was so positive, that he worked really hard, that he just fought to succeed, you know, um, for me. And it was a long journey. Things like that don't happen overnight. Mm. But he's made such a success of himself and he's just been so true to himself and really an exemplary person. And I think as well, you know, again, it's where our society, you know, they judge people who come here with nothing and they judge, yeah. you know, you've got our jobs or you're living in our yeah, social yeah, housing. Yeah. Oh, I, I hate that. Mm. absolutely hate it because it's just not true. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm. you can't stereotype every single person who's come here as wanting your home mm. or wanting your job, yeah. you know. Um, I think our society is so much richer and stronger and better for having people from all different backgrounds coming here. And you said you gave um, Tanya the picture. And what did she do with his picture? Um, she blew it up to 30 metres square on the floor of the Turbine Hall. Yeah. You know, which is just incredible. And then she put this um, special paint on top of the photo. Thermographic yes. ink or something like yes. that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. And so when you touched it, it would reveal the picture underneath because of the heat of your hands. So. Um, Lots of people were lying on top of the pitch trying yeah. to get it to come up. But I think it was quite hard to make that happen. So mm. after a while, they took the surface off so that people could see mm. the image underneath. Mm. And that's what I loved about it is that it might not have been the most, you know, visually stunning piece of art. Uh, yeah. 
but it moved people, it, it made people, people think, and I heard the most incredible conversations happening yeah. because as people came into the turbine wall and at first it looked like there was nothing there. Mm. Couldn't see anything. You couldn't see some massive great big sculpture. You yeah. couldn't, you know, sort of run around this big slide and have fun. You know, it wasn't like that. Mm. Um, but it was really amazing timing, I think, for, for that piece. Yeah. And you know what? The last question I've got for you, considering everything that's gone on the last couple of years. But yeah, let's say the last couple of years. If you could be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, I don't have to think about this too much because I'm really obsessed with cats yeah. and I have two cats. And yeah, I wouldn't mind being my cat actually yeah. because... <laughs> Go on, why? I want to hear the why. Oh, I just love them so much. I give them so much love. And, yeah, they have a very happy, smooth, contained life. But I think that's um, that's probably a sign of the times that I'm going mm -hmm. for something that feels quite safe and mm -hmm. nurtured and, and looked after. But, uh, yeah, no, otherwise I'd be a tiger. Come on. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why a tiger? Why a tiger? Tiger. Well, it's just another cat, isn't it? I'm just obsessed with cats. But tiger... You know, a bit more sort of fierce and feisty and ready yeah. to take on the challenge. And yeah. That's the sirens. That's <laughs> saying it's enough. That's saying it's it. They're for coming it, after yeah. us. It's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you. Thanks a lot for coming down. It's a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Thanks. Charles.